Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Turn to Luke chapter two. We're gonna be in Luke chapter two, verse 36 to 38. This morning, thinking about Anna in this series that we've called Women of Christmas. If you're new here today, my name's Nate Holdridge. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, we're actually in a study right now through the book of Galatians, but we took a little break for Christmas, and uh, we'll begin to get back into Galatians once the new year uh, starts. Just a couple of things about this Christmas weekend that are coming up as you're getting settled there in Luke chapter 2. We're going to have a great time at this Christmas Eve service. It's always a family affair. A lot of people like to get dressed up on that night, so if you want to do that, please feel free, but come as you are. It's a great time. The kids uh, always present us with a great couple of songs, and there's always some kind of highlight from one of the kids during each of the services. And uh, this year, at all three services, there will be a kids' choir, so nobody's going to miss out on that. One of my personal favorites uh, was when, uh, actually, Lucas Moore, there was one year where I think he was four years old this year, but he went up on stage, and he was in the very front of the kids' choir, and his mom had put him in a nice sport coat, and he had his hands in his pockets, and he got up on stage, and he realized he wanted to do the hand motions, and he needed to pull his hands out of his pockets. He spent two songs trying to figure out how to get his hands out of his pockets. He didn't think to just let go and then pull them out. But So there will always be something like that. I'll give a very short message about the Christmas story, and it'll be a fantastic time. Of course, the next day, like Pastor Matt said, is Christmas Day, and it falls on a Sunday this year. So we're just going to have one service Many of you are going to make the choice to come out on Christmas Eve and stay home with friends or family on Christmas Day, and that is just fine. Uh, But we want to have this one service because I'm not going to be the pastor that cancels church on Jesus' birthday. So uh, we'll be here. We'll just have a nice short little time. It is going to be a skeleton crew. I'm trying to do everything I can to give staff and volunteers the day uh, off, so Uh, Don't expect all the bells and whistles. Bring your own coffee and hot chocolate if that's what you want uh, because we're just going to have a handful of us open up the service and uh, be here for you, and I'll share a brief message on God's indescribable gift that uh, Sunday morning. The next Sunday after that is January 1st, so New Year's Day, and uh, we won't start Galatians on that day. On that day, given that it's the first day of the year, I'm going to give a message about how to read your Bible and uh, to try to give you some practical tools for the year to come so that you can be an increased Bible reader uh, this next year. And then on January 8th, we'll pick up our study of Galatians and Galatians chapter 3. Okay, that preamble out of the way, let's uh, read our text today, just three short verses, uh, starting in verse 36 of Luke chapter 2. It says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, Uh, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. 
And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him, Jesus, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. God, we come to you today and I pray that you would awaken our hearts just as you awakened Anna's so many years ago. Lord, you are our hope. You are the answer. You are the one that we were waiting for and continue to wait for. Lord, thank you. We pray that you'd speak to us from this woman's life this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Okay, well, the way we've framed out this series, this is our third and final woman of Christmas. Uh, We've looked at two already, starting with Elizabeth, and then Pastor Jeff taught us last week about Mary. In Elizabeth, you have an older woman, not quite as old as Anna, uh, who was happily married but had no children, and God miraculously intervened, and they had a baby in her old age who became John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. So we thought about her life together. And then the second woman we looked at, Mary, she is really in many ways the opposite of Anna, who we have today. Mary was a younger woman, a teenager. She was not yet married, but was engaged to be married, betrothed, promised to be married to a man named Joseph, and she became pregnant uh, because God put a child within her, the pregnant from the Holy Spirit. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, the angel said to Mary. And so you have a young woman who is now with child. Uh, In Anna, we have an aged woman, uh, at least 84 years old, who is a widow. She's been unmarried for decades now at the point that she comes onto the scene. Her story, as we just read it, just these three short verses, unfolds actually after Jesus's birth. Uh, When Jesus was about 40 days old, Joseph and Mary, because they were God-fearing, Bible-loving people, would have obeyed the scripture and gone to the temple for a couple of reasons. Uh, One reason is that Jesus was their firstborn son, and the law said that you should present your firstborn son to the Lord, to to thank God for this child and to offer a sacrifice or an offering on his behalf. But a second reason is that a mother was to go to the temple in order to offer a sacrifice for her own cleansing after she had given birth. So they were likely there for both of those reasons. Now, we didn't read this in the passage, but Anna is not the first person to interact with the family of Jesus and Jesus himself there on that day. Right before Anna appeared, a man named Simeon confronted them. Now, Simeon had received a promise from God that he would not die until he saw the Christ, until he saw the Messiah. And when he saw the holy family coming into the temple precincts, he took baby Jesus into his arms and he said, my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. Now, some people like to point out that the text 
Luke doesn't tell us how old Simeon is and that he might have been a younger man, uh, but that many people just think of him as old because he's coupled together with this 84-year-old woman uh, named Anna. Uh, But to me, he must be an old guy because what guy in his 20s is gonna say, uh, now I can depart in peace for my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. I think it was an older man. He now felt I can, I'm released. I can go home to be with God. But then Simeon also announced that Jesus would be a blessing to the Gentile world, but lead to the rise and fall of many in Israel and that uh, his life would be like a sword that would pierce Mary's soul. I think it was a prophecy concerning the death of Jesus, the cross of Jesus. It would be a painful experience for Mary, and we know from the gospel accounts that Mary was actually at the foot of the cross while Jesus died on it. At that moment, with those words hanging in the air, this woman, Anna, comes onto the scene. To me, it's perfect timing. This tender, old prophetess comes walking in. Now, her name, the name Anna, means favor or grace, but probably most people in her society could not have thought of her as graced by God or favored by God because seven years into her marriage, her husband had died, and she had never remarried. For many decades, she spent her life devoted to God in the temple. She was always there in the temple area. It actually says she lived in the temple, which most take as a figure of speech, meaning you went to the temple, Anna was around somewhere, but some people even think that an apartment was given to her in some storeroom there on the Temple Mount so that she literally lived in that place. So because she was there all the time, she knew Simeon and likely knew Simeon's story that God had promised him that he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah. So when he sees Simeon, when she sees Simeon from afar carrying on about this little baby in his hands, she approaches with joy, thanking God that the Redeemer that she has been waiting for has arrived. Now her words aren't recorded There aren't any other Bible passages that tell her story. Everything about her is in these three short verses that we read today. So what can we learn from this woman? What facets of her life is Luke quick to record? Uh, from, From her life, I wanna think about three elements that I think made her a woman worth remembering. First, I wanna think about how she spent her life. Secondly, I want to think about how she responded to pain. And thirdly, I want to think about where she placed her hope, which is the core of who she was. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about today is how she spent her life, number one. How she spent her life. Uh, Luke tells us in verse 37 that she was 84 years old, but... I should probably mention to you, and some of you might even be wondering if you have a different translation uh, that you're holding in your hands right now, uh, that uh, that is a little bit of a disputed age. Uh, It could mean that in the Greek she was 84, or it also could mean that 
after her husband died, she was a widow for 84 years. Uh, So if she got married, like many uh, women in that culture did, as a teenager, she became a widow in her early or mid-20s, and then for 84 more years, so she perhaps is even 105 years old or so at the point of this story. Either way, since women in that culture married very young, and since her husband died seven years into her marriage, what it means is that Anna spent the bulk of her life, many long years, since sometime in her early 20s, serving God every day in the temple. Now, she's not only honored here, she's also honored in the 1 Timothy chapter 5 passage where Paul the Apostle seems to codify her behavior as exemplary for all godly widows in the future in the church. Paul said this in 1 Timothy 5 verse 5 to Pastor Timothy. He said, here's who's truly a widow. She who is truly a widow left all alone. In other words, no one in her family can care for her. She has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Doesn't that sound like Anna? Sounds like Paul was sitting down thinking about, because there was a dispute in the church that Timothy pastored about who qualified for church support, who they should be caring for, and Paul thought, you know, here's what a true godly widow looks like, and he wrote words that sound so much like Anna. Every day she made the journey to the temple, If the house of God was open, Anna was there. Privately and publicly, she prayed, she fasted, she prophesied. She pointed everyone she could to the coming Christ who would redeem Jerusalem from its oppressors. Now, when we study Bible characters like we are today, I think sometimes it's important to take a step back and recognize that these were real people who were dealing with real human life. These are not like digital characters on a screen that animators have brought to life. These are not like fictional characters in a novel that the author has imagined. These aren't fictional beings. They are real, true, flesh and blood people who are living out the human experience. And I say that because we shouldn't think of Anna as a caricature as only what she is in this moment, an 84 or even 105-year-old woman who is there in the temple on that day alone. No, the Bible presents her here not as a woman who lived her full life and then around her 80th birthday said to herself, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna be a daily person in the temple. No, it presents her as immediately after her husband's death there in the courts of the Lord, praising his name. It was at God's house that Anna spent the rest of her 20s, all of her 30s, all of her 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s serving the Lord. When other women were out building families or building livelihoods, Anna was building a life of praise. For the vast majority of her life, God's temple was all that she knew. And it's clear how God felt about her. You see, the Bible is God's book. So when it portrays someone in a positive light, 
You're getting a glimpse into God's heart. This is how he feels about this person. Just like if you read an upbeat or enthusiastic movie review, you know that you're getting the feelings of a person, a reviewer that's behind it. Well, when you read this passage through Dr. Luke's written words, it tells us that God was enthused with the life that Anna chose. He loved the life that she lived, the decisions that she made, the way that she centered herself around him, prioritized him with her life. What I think I'm trying to say today is that God did not consider Anna's life a waste in any way, shape, or form. And I think if we pause for a moment and just think about what her life really looked like. If we, if we get out of the character mode, that she's a fictional person where it just looks to us like, oh yeah, that's a super Bible-y kind of thing to do. That's what I would expect a character in scripture to do. If we pull ourselves away from that and realize this is a real woman that we could have brushed up against there in daily life in Jerusalem, we might have to confess that many of us would be tempted to think that her life was wasted. All that time in the temple, all those prayers. What about human interaction? What about a career? What about a family? What about experiencing something beyond the confines of those 37 acres of the Temple Mount? Anna counted, as Paul the Apostle said, all of that as rubbish for the chance to get to know God better. And God loved her life. Now I think in looking at Anna, we need to be encouraged, exhorted, stimulated, urged on not to waste our own lives. You know, we live in an age that tells us to be true to ourselves and to spend ourselves on our passions, to do the things that we love. So we write up our bucket lists and we start ticking them off one by one only to find that these things can never fully bring us the satisfaction that we desire. Anna understood that there was a God-shaped hole inside of her, something that could only be satisfied with God, that only God could fulfill her. So she spent her life pursuing him. Now, of course, we have to confess that not everyone in Jerusalem in that era could have done what Anna did. Somebody had to feed the goats. Somebody had to plant the crops. Somebody had to take out the garbage. But what Anna was doing was using her special situation as a widowed woman with low overhead to do what other people couldn't do. I'm gonna devote myself every day to the Lord. I don't have toddlers running around. I don't have a husband to take care of. I'm just gonna throw myself completely into serving him. And I think she serves as an example to every last one of us that the time we spend pursuing God is never a waste. Her life is an exhortation to spend our lives well, to make sure that God is at the center of who we are, not just in word or confession. Oh, he's number one, but in actuality. As Pastor Britt Merrick once wrote, two things in life are the most telltale in our lives finances, and time. You can tell everything you ever wanted to know about our hearts, passions, and priorities from the way we spend our money and the way we spend our time. And I think we've become all too comfortable with squandering both, especially 
our time. We often wonder how we could ever sit through a Bible study without losing interest, how we could ever read our Bibles or pray for 15 uninterrupted minutes, how we could make it to church every Sunday or join a Christian small group all well faithfully clocking our three or four hours of television each day or allowing ourselves to be distracted with whatever new and decent and fine invention Satan will use to distract us, deform us, deter us, desensitize us, compromise us, to aid us in wasting our lives. The Roman philosopher Seneca once said that people who are otherwise frugal and stingy with their money often squander their time, which is of much greater value. Now, to be a Jesus follower, you have to consider how you are spending your life. Through each passing minute of Anna's life, she formed a legacy. Until Luke recorded this moment, Anna's life was quiet and unnoticed. She spent her time and her treasure on God. And if you want to have and leave a godly legacy behind you, today is the day to begin. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 says that now is the acceptable time. And today is the day of salvation. All right, so the first thing that we've seen is how Anna spent her life. But let's think secondly about how Anna responded to pain. How did Anna respond to pain? And she went through a painful thing. Seven years into her marriage, uh, it says her husband died. And uh, her response was to head into the temple for worship, to devote herself to God. Now, some of you might be wondering if uh, maybe uh, Anna's husband's death was some sort of relief for Anna. Maybe Anna's husband was a terrible person, a, a terrible, uh, violent, harmful kind of man, a, a nightmare of a person. And though a trial for him to die, she felt a bit of relief and release from that day on. And I suppose that's possible. People are people. But I think we'd be reading our culture into hers. Our, our culture produces at a much higher rate men like that. Her society's weakness was that it made life very hard for a single woman, especially a widowed, unmarried woman. So when Anna's husband died, she was entering into a very severe trial, especially for the age that she was in. And instead of blaming God or rebuking God or doubting God, Anna praised God every day. I'm sure during the course of those decades as she went to prayer, as she centered herself upon the Lord, there were moments of frank honesty before God. I'm sure she prayed many of the types of prayers that we find in the Psalms where she's questioning and challenging God and wondering why he's behaving in the way that he is in her life. But she never stopped going to God. She never stopped pursuing God. Just as Mary had donated her body for the birth of God's son, so Anna donated her body for a life of praise. Recently, I saw a short little video that reminded me of what life is like. It, it was a kind of like a dashboard cam on a roller coaster somewhere. And the two passengers that were in the seat were these two 
teenage girls and they're just going on this roller coaster and they're screaming their heads off having the time of their life until a seagull smacks into the face of one of the girls and then gets stuck because of the gravitational forces underneath her chin. And uh, the look on her face is just a look of utter shock. She's having the time of her life and then, oh, what is this? She finally wriggles an arm free and pushes the bird off to her left and it flops away. And then she tries to enjoy the rest of the ride. And when I saw that video, I thought that is a great picture of what life is like. <laughs> you're cruising along, you're enjoying yourself, and then something slams into you that you could never possibly have prepared for. Like Mike Tyson always says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> And the question is, how will we respond? Well, Anna responded well. And I think much of her response was rooted in what she believed about God. She was waiting, it says in verse 38, for the redemption of Jerusalem. She knew, in other words, what period of human history she was in. She was not in the paradise season of human history. She was in the waiting season of human history. Redemption was future, redemption was coming. Because she believed this about God, that sin had broken everything, but that God would rescue her and us from it in the future, she did not expect to be preserved from sin's impact today. She clearly did not think that God owed her. His promises for redemption and peace in her mind were something that were coming absolutely but that she was not owed today. And I love that Anna didn't merely try to just grind through her grief. You know, it's one thing to not blame God, but it's quite another to do what she did and actually pursue God. That was Anna. She pressed into God. Her husband was gone, so she decided that God would be the one to satisfy the gap that her husband had left behind. I was recently talking with uh, a woman in our church, Whitney Ernest, who's uh, the kids' choir director for Christmas Eve. And she was telling me this great story about something that she experienced last year while leading the kids' choir. After the kids are done singing, at least the way they did it last year, they came off the stage and off to the right, my right here, there was a couple of rows that were dedicated for the kids to be able to sit in during the remainder of the service while I preached my sermon. And uh, there were little bags on the chairs for them filled with little goodies, things that would kind of keep them occupied uh, while uh, Pastor Nate gave an adult message to the congregation. And uh, one of the things that was in there, you know, with little coloring books and all of that, but one thing that was in there was these little candy canes because, you know, what better way to help a kid focus than to give them candy? And uh, so these kids started getting out their candy canes and eating them, and a lot of these little guys started realizing really quickly that candy canes are too spicy for them and that they don't like candy canes. So in the middle of service, they just started treating her like their mom because she was there. So they just took their candy canes out and just handed it to them. Now, I don't like it. 
and uh, there was no trash can around, no empty coffee cup around. I was in the middle of my sermon, and she wanted to be polite, so she just sat there with a handful of wet, gooey candy canes right in like the middle of COVID and all that, just sitting there holding this, enduring until the very end. I'm very proud of her. I think a lot of us approach trials like that. And I don't like it, I hate it, it bugs me, but I'm just gonna grit it out and I'm gonna do it quietly and alone. I might not express my anger to God, I might be, be nervous about doing that or praying to him in that way, but I'm not also gonna turn to him. And I'm definitely not gonna turn to his church either. And so we distance ourselves. We, we take a break from God. We take a break from his people, believing that we will someday reappear before both God and his people once our lives are figured out and cleaned up a little bit. But Anna pursued God in the middle of her ugliest seasons of life. Her widow years became worship years. And I think we should emulate her we should let our pains turn into even the ugliest versions of praise. God can satisfy us, but only if we turn to him. Like Anna, we need to allow all our disappointments and difficulties to become entry points for God's work in our lives. Like David, who wrote prayers to God while hiding from relatives who'd gone mad and wanted to kill him, we should pray when we're hurt by those closest to us. Like the midwives in Egypt who feared God when the Pharaoh told them to do immoral and terrible things. We should follow God even when it might hurt us. Like the elderly apostle John who kept worshiping on Sundays even when he was banished to a prison island because of his service to Jesus. We should fight to keep the Lord's day even when it hurts. And like Paul and Silas, who worshiped God when locked up in the dungeons of Philippi, we should push through to praise God even when everything else in our lives is stripped away. Like Anna, we should respond well to pain because Jesus endured the pain for us. All right, but the last thing that I want to point out to you about Anna is where the source of this strength and life came from in the first place. It's about where Anna placed her hope. J.I. Packer, the theologian, once wrote, where there's life, there's hope is a deep truth. Deeper, however, is the converse, where there's hope, there's life. We humans are hoping creatures. We live very largely on and in our anticipations, things we know are coming and we look forward to. If the light of hope goes out, life shrinks to mere existence, something far less than life was meant to be. To me, that little paragraph describes Anna so perfectly, so well. As a prophetess, she knew the prophecies of the Old Testament and had a great hope in what God was going to do. And that hope drove her to communion with God which is the very definition of being alive. 
We're made in his image in part to enjoy and experience and partake of him. And Anna was certainly getting her full dose of God while walking on this earth. You could say in a sense she was more alive than anyone else that was in that region because of her daily relationship with God. But it was all rooted in the hope that she had. What do I mean by that? Well, remember, Anna was a prophetess. There's not a lot of them mentioned in the Bible, especially before the time of Jesus. By my count, at least, she was female prophet number five in the Bible. Uh, After Moses' sister, Miriam, after Deborah, the judge, the hero in the book of Judges, after Huldah, who prophesied the king, Josiah, and after Isaiah's own wife, who herself was a prophetess. As a prophet, Anna was familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, and she knew that they promised a future redemption for God's people, and that's what she was waiting for. Anna, in other words, would have been conscious of the same prophecies that Zechariah and Elizabeth were conscious of at the end of the book of Malachi, talking about how Elijah would come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And in those predictions from the prophet Malachi, God said that he was going to come one day and burn like an oven and consume all evil and all arrogance from the earth and bring healing to everyone who feared his name. Anna knew that she was a God-fearer, that she was in the camp of those who would receive healing, and she looked forward to that great day. She also would have been conscious of Isaiah's prophecies about a descendant of David who would come one day, who was also the child of a virgin mother, who when he was born would arrive with the Spirit of God upon him. One day, Isaiah said, the government would be on his shoulder and his name would be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And Isaiah said, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And Anna clung to that promise. She probably had prayed the prayer in Psalm 72 that said that one day a king would arise above all other kings, and that all the other kings and nations would bow to this solitary king, just like the wise men did after Jesus' birth. And Anna is only the most recent in a long line of biblical women who hoped for the coming of Christ. There are, of course, many more women in the Christmas story than the three that we've considered this Christmas time, Elizabeth and Mary and Anna. You know, Matthew, who told the story of Jesus' birth, he actually started with a genealogy of Jesus' ancestry. And in that uh, genealogy, he was careful to mention four women in particular. He mentioned Bathsheba, the woman whom King David stole from one of his special forces operators arranging for his death in battle. And I think Bathsheba longed for a righteous king to arise. Before Bathsheba came Ruth, a Moabite foreigner outside of Israel who came to know and trust God before marrying Boaz and becoming the great grandmother of King David. I think she longed for a light 
to dawn upon the non-Jewish world. Before Ruth was Rahab, Matthew says, in her past, she'd been a prostitute in the Canaanite city of Jericho. I think she longed for the one who could take away, wash away all our sins. And the first woman that Matthew mentioned was Tamar, whom a man named Judah had scandalously impregnated and then attempted to ostracize. I think she longed for justice for all who are oppressed and abused. And before these four women in Jesus's family tree were many others, dating all the way back to the very first woman the Bible records, Eve. After sin entered the world, God immediately promised that a descendant of hers would come one day and crush the head of the serpent. And Anna was conscious of that Genesis 3.15 promise that Eve had received. And with birth after birth, Eve herself waited with bated breath for that snake crusher to arrive, removing the great curse that had come upon the perfect world that God had made. And when God promised years later to Abraham that from him would come a great nation to bless all nations and that from his body would come descendants as innumerable as the stars in the sky, God said that it would happen through his wife, Sarah's body. Someday through Abraham, the seed to crush the serpent and bless all nations would arrive. And though Sarah initially laughed when she heard that God would use her aged body, she eventually, after Isaac's birth, laughed in joy over what God had done. God was fulfilling his promise. After her, Rebecca had Jacob, then Leah had Judah, and God kept narrowing down the line, the family tree of Jesus, holding out the promise the serpent crusher would come. The seed of Abraham would bless all nations. And all these women, Anna included, hoped and believed that God's promise would be fulfilled, that someday the darkness would lift and the age of great blessing would come. And I believe that we should carry that same hope today. Anna wanted the redemption of Jerusalem. We want the redemption of the whole world. Isaiah and Habakkuk after him promised that a day would come when the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can you imagine that? I don't, I don't think you can. The knowledge of the Lord covering the earth like the waters cover the sea. And we know a little bit about the sea here on the Monterey Bay. We know that it's teeming with life out in that bay, that there's an underwater world, a whole uh, ocean of, of life that exists in the water. One day, Jesus will come, and he will establish his reign and rule and kingdom forever, and it will be like living under the ocean surface. We will exist inside of him, in his realm, with the knowledge of him and his ways and his goodness. Nothing at that moment will be untouched by Jesus. So right now, though we hope for that kingdom, though we long for that kingdom, we have a hard time imagining it. But one day when Jesus returns, not as a baby, but as a conquering king, what no eye has seen and what no ear has heard or imagined, 
what God has prepared for those who love him, it will be known. It will be our experience. We will be living within it. So with Anna, let's be a people who live in anticipation and hope. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.